Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that if we all work together, there is time to create the future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Manda Scott, your host in this journey into possibility, and I have just had an extraordinarily uplifting conversation with someone who is actively working towards the emergent future that we all want. But before I introduce him, I do want to remind you that if you want to engage more deeply with the ethos that underpins Accidental Gods, we have an online gathering on Sunday 29th of October. Dreaming Your Death Awake is a standalone. You do not have to be a member or to have done any other work with us, though I do tend to think of this as the start of a cycle, partly because there's a theory that the year was counted to start at Samhain, which is the 1st of November, which is, again, the onset of winter in the old cycles of the year on this island. But mainly because I am 100% certain that we can't learn to live fully until we've embraced our death and understood how to stop taking any moment of our life, waking or sleeping, for granted. When we apply this level of attention and intention to our days, then the boundaries of what's possible are thrown wide open. And I think that's what we need now. Open boundaries. Letting go of what we used to think was possible and finding out what is actually possible when we're really living fully in every moment. So that's what Dreaming Your Death Awake is for. I will put a link in the show notes, but the gatherings are always on accidentalgods.life on the gatherings tab. We have a whole new set planned for next year. Faith and I just had most of a Sunday sitting planning, trying to find ways we can integrate the theories of change we explore on the podcast with the core experiential work of the Accidental Gods membership. So watch this space, but Sunday 29th is Dreaming Your Death Awake. And in the meantime, I want to introduce you all to Monty Merlin, someone who is working deeply and effectively at the cutting edge of emergence, a change maker who works on so many different scales to build that future that we would all be proud to leave behind. Monty is a founder of Refi Dow, building a global network of regenerative communities and startups. He's a public speaker. He's an evangelist for refi and regeneration. And he has a TEDx talk entitled Can Crypto Regenerate the World, which I have put in the show notes. He has a master's degree in management and innovation from what sounds like a genuine attempt to bring theories of change into education, to make the doing of it become an agent of change in its own right. That alone would have been enough for the podcast. But he specialises in sustainability, digital technologies and blockchain and design and systems thinking. And we all know we are on the edge of tipping points where the combination of AI and the internet and everything around it pushed by huge money in dollars but also in cryptocurrencies and backed by the financial markets is going to change everything. 
But it can also be really hard to get our heads around how this is happening. The mechanisms, the logistics, the ideas behind it. And how it could hold the potential for a genuinely regenerative future. Monty is one of the few people I've come across who can take these mind-bendingly complex concepts and render them comprehensible to ordinary people without making them so baseline that they stop being of value. Our conversation today ranged across landscapes from the nature of greenwashing to the potential for borderless nations. From the way the financial markets currently underpin the existing structures to how they could be tilted to underpin a whole new regenerative paradigm. We explored the differences between what's sustainable and what's regenerative and discovered what's actually happening now that you could be involved in, in your communities of place and purpose and of passion. I say the word inspiring way too often in this conversation and I apologise in advance, but it's true. Knowing that this is happening is one of the bright points of this year and I am absolutely, genuinely thrilled to be able to share it with you. So people of the podcast, please do welcome Monty Merlin of Refi Dow. Monty, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. It is a real delight and an honour to have you here. How are you and where are you? this lovely autumn morning. Amanda, it's great to be here. Um, and yeah, really excited to, to be on this podcast with you. Your writing's been very inspiring. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm currently calling in from the south of France, um, where I've just come out to, um, to stay with my cousin, who's, who set up a little co-living, um, co-working community out here. Um, and so yeah, I'm, I'm here for a couple of weeks, um, but I'm originally from uh, the southwest uh, in, uh, of Dorset in the UK. Um, and I've been kind of a bit nomadic the last six months, traveling around to, to various different conferences and um, places in Europe, meeting uh, all sorts of interesting people. So Brilliant. Yeah. So hopefully we'll get to unpack some of that at some point, because that's been sounding really interesting as I've been following you. <laughs> not Not in any way tracking you across the web. <laughs> so... Okay, so let's unpick this a little bit. You're one of the co-founders of Refi Dow, and even the name of that begins to touch the edges of what my understanding is of what a Dow is, how it works. I don't know what Refi is and what it means. So can you unpick a little bit of how you got to be there and then what that means in any way you like? Sure. Yeah. So I think maybe, yeah, starts to make sense to start from the beginning a little bit in terms of myself and where I've come from, uh, a bit of kind of background. Um, so I guess from a, from a very young age, I've always been an environmentalist and thinking about big issues because I've just grown up in a family where that is what we talk about all the time. Uh, my mum's written many, many books, um, been an environmentalist for 30, 40 years now. Um, and I've got two older brothers uh, who are also fiercely uh, intellectual and love debating. Uh, and so you can kind of imagine the kind of household that I've um, grown up in, uh, which I've been very, very fortunate. Um, but I've also always been like a techie and a builder and love thinking about the future. Um, and, and so I've you know, been building websites and hacking things together. I was even a hacker at one point uh, doing, doing things in that. Um, and uh, at the same time, you know, studied economics and philosophy 
um, at school were topics of interest. And so, so the world of cryptocurrencies and Web3 and blockchain was always interesting from the very beginning to me because it is this confluence of economics, of politics, of philosophy, of tech, um, of, of all these kind of things. Um, but at the same time, it never had this environmentalism side to it. In fact, quite the opposite. We all know that Bitcoin has this kind of a negative environmental um, image, uh, which is largely true. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's true. definitely a lot more nuance there to unpack, but uh, we don't need to get into that. Um, so it wasn't really until my time at university, uh, I was studying at uh, the University of Bristol uh, on a, an amazing course called Management with Innovation, which was a, which was a really great course because it, it actually allowed the innovation side of, of my degree. You could study many different subjects or disciplines and then do it combined with innovation. So I was in this cohort of people from computer science, from geography, from finance, from you know, all these different disciplines coming together to learn the methodologies and the uh, ideas behind business, startups, organizational structures, uh, and then actually applying those theories of agile, lean, kind of, you know, all, the, all these kind of methodologies in the real world by practicing and actually starting startups. So um, instead of, um, you know, writing a dissertation for my right. master's, we launched a startup for a year. Uh, and, and that is what I'm continuing to do to this day. So yeah, it was, it was during my master's program that this refi sector was born, uh, refi standing for regenerative finance. Um, and so maybe we can get into a, a bit about what refi is and my journey since I discovered it uh, at university. Definitely. I would like to unpick a number of things just before we get to that, just to give us a more solid foundation. And purely from my own curiosity, when you did economics and philosophy at school, it was neoliberal economics or did they branch yes. into, did they mention Kate Rayworth or Jason Hickel? Or? That was always coming from, I guess, my own research and, and okay. background with, with having uh, my mum being in this uh, study. Okay, yes. Your mother, who is Julia Hale's MBE, who is a very well-known <laughs> sustainability pioneer. So yes. yeah, it's, it's, you have a really interesting <laughs> pedigree. <laughs> Speaking as a vet, where pedigrees are what you look at whenever you assess something. <laughs> so you brought into what to me seems quite an old paradigm neoliberal world, the concepts of mm. understanding that we are an integral part of the web of life rather than here to extract from it at all points. Were you alone in your degree in being aware of and embedded in this world? Or were there others of your age group who, who got it as well? Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting question. I think when I was in school, I was actually, you know, focused on, on understanding the, the neoliberal um, ideas that were being taught, um, because I, th I did find them deeply interesting. Um, but at the same time, of course, I was, you know, reading and learning about Kate Raworth and, and these alternative regenerative economics and, and things like that. But it actually, yeah, it felt actually quite separate. Um, and I guess it wasn't until more university when there was more creative explorations to be able to, like, take the topics that I was learning and take it in the directions that I was interested in and read the papers and write my essays on these more alternative theories. And, of course, the professors there had more intellectual depth to be able to, to, to challenge some of these ideas. But, and, you know, university is a lot about critical thinking as well. So, you know, that's, I guess, been been my journey in terms of, in terms of that. But I think also even um, it's interesting, you know, with, with my mom as well and thinking about her journey and the work, her work. Um, and so like where, where she became really successful and, and popularized this green consumer movement. 
So her, her book that sold a million copies was The Green Consumer Guide, um, which she authored with John Elkington, who is another um, sort of famous um, or, or uh, sustainability academic. And at the time, it was a movement to, um, instead of uh, the prevailing kind of culture of environmentalists, was to rally against business and just go, you're all evil, you suck. And the business would just go, okay, cool, well, we're just going to ignore you. Um, and so the green consumer movement uh, was this idea that actually by changing your spending habits as a consumer, you could send the signal to companies to change. And that would create this kind of uh, movement. And it, it did create a massive impact at the time. You know, you suddenly companies were inviting environmentalists onto their board and like changing their policies. But I think growing up now and seeing the net result of that, it, it's clear that that has very much reached its limit. And we see so much greenwashing. We see this kind of commodification and you know micro consumerist kind of rubbish. Frankly, where actually companies now put the responsibility on the consumer, and and it really ignores that there's a really deep systemic problem here that is far greater than any individual, and frankly, not an individual's responsibility. Uh, you know, there's obviously plenty of space for individual action, but uh, we really need deep system change here. And that's what um, that's what I'm hoping we can um, talk about and, and enact. Yes. Yes, because BP did not create the personal carbon footprint calculator in order to wean us off fossil fuels. It created it to divert all of our attention, our bandwidth, our energy and our courage into micromanaging our own lives and letting the system carry on as it was. Yes. I was at a conference recently with Josiah Meldrum of Hodmadods, who was recalling, I think it was him, and I think it was them. And if you're going to tell me that you had this anecdote, I wouldn't disbelieve you. But that's the, a conference where somebody was explaining why they'd given up one particular mobile phone network for one that was much, much more regenerative and engaged and all the rest of it. And it turned out that it was owned by the people she was talking to. So O2 owned GifGaf, I think. And she dropped O2 to go to GifGaf because GifGaf was much more regenerative. And the, the guy in, on the panel went, you do know that we own it, don't you? And so what happened, I think, with the green consumer movement was exactly as you say, companies did change some of their policy, but what they did was to create brand streams that catered to that market seeing it as a growing market and continued with everything else they were doing that was extractive. However, so I have a really interesting, this is part of my own inquiry for myself, and we will definitely get to regenerative finance in a second, but just as a broader philosophical question, we are told in spiritual terms, and I believe in personal terms, that the only person in the end that I can genuinely influence is myself. I can write books, I can do podcasts, I can express ideas out into the world, but big change happens inside. And yet, we know by now that you and I and the people who listen to this podcast and your podcast are not enough to affect the rate of change at the speed that we need it, at the scale that we need it. How do you internally cross the bridge between internal change and collective change? Does that make sense as a question? Yes, yes. No, I think it's it's a very good question. Um, and we kind of have this mantra, I guess, uh, in ReFi, in ReFiDAO, um, that regeneration begins within. Um, that in order to regenerate the earth, we must first regenerate ourselves um, and, and help support people around us to do the same. Um, and so really it's about looking inwards to understand what are the drivers within ourselves that maybe are driving for extractive tendencies for these over maybe overexpressed masculine 
dominance of power structures and more and cons consume and I need money and wealth and, uh, you know, these kind of things. And just to, to question those, those drivers and is that actually what's creating happiness and, and flourishing for the world? And so I think that in order to engage in regenerative business and regenerative practices, you have to have unlocked this mindset because otherwise we're just going to recreate the same extractive systems before, but in new expressions and new contexts and new ways uh, with new technologies, uh, but without actually addressing some of the more um, systemic fundamental uh, within, uh, as well as the systemic fundamental kind of uh, reality of the, of the external systems that we operate within. Um, and there's also a word there, external, um, which actually the, the, this links to another principle that we kind of look at. And I know you, you, you're very familiar with uh, this idea that we're actually not separate. Um, we're, we're both an individual and a whole um, and part of a, a much larger whole um, as well. So rather than seeing us all as distinct individuals that are there to conquer and grab as much resources as we can as individuals, actually seeing us as part of a dense interconnected web um, of connections that, that overall um, the summation of that is, you know, Gaia. And we can, you know, talk about the Gaia hypothesis, but I'm sure uh, all your listeners are maybe aware of that already. But I guess the closest you could, uh, you could get to, to my form of religion uh, would be the, the Gaia hypothesis. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, anyway. Okay. And, and because this podcast grows out of my own spiritual focus, I'm really interested in how that sense of being part of the greater web of life, however we define it. Are you aware internally of how that changes who you are and your behavior and your relationships? How how do you map that internally, if you do? This may be too deep a question, it may be yeah, too personal, but I think, see where you go. I think what, what, what was coming up for me is just how it fills me personally with a deep sense of meaning and of purpose and is, is what fundamentally motivates me right. uh, and interests me. Um, you know, I think maybe, you know, humans obviously crave and seek meaning and stories and narratives, and we're constantly kind of making these. Um, and that for me is, is where uh, religion has played such a large role. And then we uh, have actually moved from religion to kind of nation states and other form of structures that we now see our identity within um, and now um, actually moving towards kind of networks and, and communities of people all around the globe where we're starting to ascribe value um, and, and get meaning from. Um, and for me, yeah, I, I, I get a real sense of meaning of, of feeling a part of this global kind of interconnected organism um, of which I can hopefully um, have a meaningful impact on and um, make, make the world a better place. I don't know. It's, for, for me, that's really interesting. And um, yeah, yeah, it's it gives brilliant. me motivation every day. And, and, and uh, yeah. Thank you. Yes, that's really inspiring. And I'm really curious about the breaking down of geographic boundaries and the moving towards a more net based sense of identity. But let's get to that later. Let's head in now down the rabbit hole of regenerative finance and regenerative business, because mm -hmm. I end up with a kind of internal schism where the word regenerative and the words finance and business are mutually <laughs> opposing and they're impossible. And you clearly yes. live in a world where that's not the case. So can you first yes. unpick what regenerative means for you? So we've got our definitions clear. And then how is how is it possible to have finance that is regenerative? So, yeah, in order to kind of understand regeneration, just kind of need to think about the, ter the dominant terms that we, we hear about today of sustainability. Um, and if we think about what sustainability really means, uh, it's about sustaining 
our capacity so that we're not losing uh, and degrading what we already have uh, and sustaining it for future generations. But if we look at the current state of the world, I would say that sustainable is quite a low bar um, given how much destruction has already gone on um, and, and the state that we're at in terms of our atmosphere, our biodiversity loss, um, the way our economic and social um, systems have, have developed. So I think we need to do better than sustainability. Um, and I think we need, need regeneration, which is about how we actually build and improve our resource capacity and create systems that are actively uh, improving and getting better and, um, and, and developing. So that's um, a kind of quick mental mental model. Yes. And I just wanted to interject, say, at the same conference where I was talking to Josiah, a wonderful woman called Claire Whittle was on stage and she said, we have to drop sustainability because she spoke to somebody recently who said if they went home to their partner and asked, how do you think our relationship yeah. is? And they said, it's sustainable. You'd be really disappointed. Uh, <laughs> so Right, exactly. It's, it's got to, and sustainable just effectively for me, just means doing slightly less harm. And and we're way beyond the point where we have to actually start healing what has mm. been done. So we're agreed that regeneration is about recovery and restoration and healing of self and other, I think. So then now I'm really curious as to how do we apply that in the realms of finance and business in ways that can exist in the hegemonic, neoliberal, predatory capital death cult and mm. still... Mm act in regenerative ways? Well, that is the question that I'm fascinated about. Yay. So, so in terms of finance, I, I look at finance and economics as almost the single greatest coordination tool that humans have ever invented. Um, greatest in terms of um, impact on the world. Like we all, every day, all over the world, make decisions that are influenced by finance, money and economics. Um, at a giant global level, this invisible hand of market forces seemingly guides human behavior on a vast scale and does so almost um, uh, without being conscious of it. People are, are just kind of operating in this yeah. system um, that's being driven by finance, money, uh, and these very complex um, systems. Um, and so for me, I think the great area of interest is, can we start to think about these systems, reimagine them, redesign them uh, in ways that can have the same giant systemic global impact, but reorientate them uh, in the direction of not just replication of financial capital for an elite, but instead the creation of holistic wealth. Um, and so we have this model in ReFi that, that's very prevalent, uh, and we, it's called the eight forms of capital. And so it looks at, okay, um, we're, we're used to the dominant paradigm of financial capital and GDP, above all else. But actually, uh, when we think about it more holistically, there's material capital, you know, the things around us, uh, this table here, uh, a car. Uh, we have living capital, the natural world, um, biodiversity, cultural capital, experiential capital, intellectual capital, spiritual capital, and social capital. And when we start to look at wealth in this much more holistic way, we can say, okay, where are the areas where some form of financial, not even just financial, it's kind of goes a little bit beyond that, just almost coordination mechanisms and, and looking at also social and cultural systems that actually help to get us towards um, this future. So, you know, finance is, is one part of that. It's, it's broader than that as well. Uh, but also finance is a very important part of that as well, because for me, I feel like it's an area where we can have a real large scale, rapid impact uh, if we design these systems um, smartly uh, and in the right way. So let's just define finance. Is finance the markets as in 
the trading of invisible things across the internet very, very, very fast in order that a capital accumulates in certain places. Is that what finance is as it stands at the moment? Or do you have a broader definition of finance? I think that's probably the dominant uh, mode of finance that we see today. But I think I do see finance more broadly than that in terms of like at its root level, like, you know, know when you do like some mental accounting, when uh, you're with your friends and you say, oh, you buy this, I'll buy this. uh, And you kind of try and balance out. So it's roughly fair on a holiday. You each kind of spent a rough amount. It's kind of like how you're uh, obviously when you're doing that with a friend, you do that on a friendly basis. You're you're uh, you're not going to like ruthlessly account for all of that because yeah. you know you're all friends and whatever. Uh, you hope. I mean, maybe some people do. Um, but when we start to think about how humans want to cooperate across social distance, um, so with our neighbours and even beyond our neighbours, we don't want to have to go through the mental bandwidth of the time of creating trust networks and friends. And you know, we kind of can't coordinate beyond that scale. And so for me, finance is a coordination mechanism that allows us to, I mean, we're talking about money here, really, Uh, it it is a coordination mechanism that allows us to um, create larger societal organizational structures. Um, And and that to me is quite a broad concept. Um, And so how can we redefine that that concept to be uh, much more regenerative uh, in this holistic sense? That would be my, my frame of reference. Yeah, this is so exciting, Monty. So we're trying to re-coordinate something which, at its heart, I my internal model for finance is still the giant vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity. And I'm really intrigued as to how you take something whose purpose at the moment is to grow. I, I was really struck by Zach Stein on the Emerge podcast where they were discussing AI and the whole Eliezer Yukowski, you know, it's just going to switch us all off because we're all made of atoms it wants to use for something else. And the fear that AI will go rogue and The only thing it'll know is how to grow. And we'll have this incredibly complex system spread across the earth that will destroy everything in its path in pursuit of mindless growth. And Zach said, we we have already got that. It's called capitalism. And we don't know how to switch that off either. Why are we worrying about the AI when we're living in something that is doing exactly this and growing exponentially? You know, let's, let's get real about the problems. So finance or business or whatever we call it at the moment seems to me that it's beating heart of the giant vampire squid is to grow, is to accumulate capital. And how we distribute the capital is a question. And we could choose to distribute the capital in a more equitable manner, but we would still be within a system that was requiring to grow and extract. Mm. How, How are you? What is your theory of change of taking the giant vampire squid and turning it into, I don't know, what's a better metaphor? A tree. Yeah, so I, I think this 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 um, growth question is is really interesting. Um, for me, I think when we look at capital now with this more holistic framework of living capital, cultural capital, experiential capital, um, I think there's clear areas in there where we need significant growth. <laughs> you know, like we need to reprioritize financial growth um, towards growth in our living capital, which we've depleted. Um, and so for me, I think there's there's still a place for growth, but we want to reorientate growth towards the areas that actually creating holistic value for the world um, and 
take away growth from the extractive, destructive industries that are polluting and destroying the world? What if we could say, okay, instead of having thousand companies that are producing useless plastic toys and consuming all resources for something that's actually just driving a consumerist machine that's making no one happy and extracting from the planet. Uh, that and, need- and creating things that float on the sea and choke everything that lives there. Yes. Yeah, and that's at its best. Uh, you know, uh, you know, how can we degrowth from those sectors uh, and and put growth in towards the regenerative sectors. Okay. Um, and so that's what I'm interested in. Um, and, and of course, then looking at it through the through the, the model of Kate Raworth and donut economics, I think one of the brilliant insights for me is, is you know, you want to obviously operate within that donut because within the donut is where you have a um, insufficiency of, of uh, your basic needs being met and beyond the, the donut is where you're breaching planetary boundaries and we're going beyond our capacity. Um, so you obviously want to, to have an economy that is within this donut. Uh, of course, we're, we're not there at the moment. Um, but the crucial insight for me is once you're within this donut, you can actually grow the donut itself right. um, through in, enhances in, in technological advancements and efficiency and the way we manage and balance and use resources. Um, we can grow the size of the donut, improve the Earth's regenerative capacity, um, and that creates a larger pie for all. Um, which is again, I think it's it's realigning growth within the planetary boundaries. Um, so that that's yeah, that that's how I maybe uh, would look at growth. Wow, I'm really intrigued about growing the donut. I'm not fully understanding because for me, the safe operating space has a hard lower boundary in that you don't want to drop below basic human, material, social, emotional, mental, and spiritual needs, and the outer rim is defined by. I, I thought hard physical constants of the boundaries that we are currently breaking quite spectacularly. The new Stockholm Resilience Centre diagram of, of the boundaries that we've exceeded since they first did it in 2009 is, is frankly terrifying. And within that, those two is our safe operating space. In your model, Where's the flexibility for growth? Where does the growth happen? Yeah, so so if you look at like the current world, we have, like you say, this resource capacity of the Earth, right? But what we've actually been doing is is extracting from its resource capacity. When we destroy a rainforest or implement some extractive model where we're degrading the soil, suddenly there's less productive capacity to then continue producing uh, more food. And so, so actually by regenerating our Earth's resource capacity, that's one way. Okay, so we build soil, then we have more soil. Yes. Yes, okay. Yes. And another way would be, say, we take the example of AI and we 100x our productivity. Uh, if we 100x our productivity in regeneration, then right. we can suddenly um, you know, consume vastly less resources. And so therefore, we've actually grown the size of the donut because we're individually consuming less resources because we've made our societies more efficient through the use of technology right. in a kind of uh, productive way that's actually in alignment with people on the planet. Okay. And so... Yeah, those, those for me would be two different parts of, of maybe how we grow the size of the donut, um, essentially. Okay. So brilliant. Thank you. This makes a lot more sense. How does that happen then? Because the capacity of, let's let's move into AI because it's a bit of a, a hot button at the moment. If it increases by 100 times the capacity of extraction, mm-hmm. we, are, we are 100 times faster doomed, which is not, not a happy thought. If... If instead it increases by a hundred times or a thousand times or exponentially beyond our capacity to measure times, our regenerative capacity, that's grand. What's your theory of change of flipping the direction of travel? Because at the moment, the the overwhelming majority of finance business, the the death cult is a death cult. It does want to grow because politicians can only measure things in GDP and for some reason they're still in charge. Why? I have a theory of change that gets rid of them quite fast. Mm. Um, how 
how are you seeing this happen in a timescale that works? Yes. So, so my, my theory of change there is within refi, this field, regenerative finance, the refi abbreviation specifically relates to the use of advanced technologies, whether it's Web3, blockchains, AI, measurement reporting verification technologies, um, satellite, you know, remote sensing, you know, all these advanced technologies, how we can utilize these in pursuit of building this next generation regenerative system. Um, and I think part, part of what's so exciting to me um, is the power that these technologies unlock is it allows us to build and experiment with these entirely new systems that we can just start. We can start trying to build these. Are, if, if the governments and the corporations and the, you know, people aren't doing it, um, then, then we need to do it, right? And, and so what does it look like to start creating regenerative economic systems, regenerative communities, um, you know, regenerative social, economic, uh, environmental systems, creating a network of these all over the globe, and suddenly you know, growing that network so that more people and resources are being channeled into this new regenerative paradigm. Um, and it feels to me that's a way we can almost like Instead of just attacking the old system, uh, which it, you, you're just going to receive an equal and opposite, yeah. if not greater, force back to try and squash you, what if instead we can we can grow uh, our own movements, right? Uh, and actually, yeah. part of our thesis as well is really creating bridges with the conventional industries, world governments, corporations, um, to start to bring them into the structures, into the the thinking, um, and obviously that requires a different pathway for different people and different groups. But you know that's been definitely one of our core theses, um, and you know we haven't we've done a network of about 70 events across the globe in communities all over the globe um, that are talking about regenerative finance, um, this whole emerging ecosystem, um, and starting to try and build bridges to local municipalities, NGOs, corporations, uh, whatever is in that um, locality, um, to start to have the conversation of, of how, how do we build a regenerative economy and, and get ourselves out of this total mess um, that we're in. So okay. there's no guarantees that that's going to work. but um, It's got to be worth trying. It's got to be worth trying. And so that, yeah, that's what yeah. we're here to do. This is pure Buckminster Fuller. The way to to break a system is not to attack the old system, it's to create the new system that makes the old one obsolete. And you're actually doing it, Monty. I could not be more excited. Trying. We're trying. trying. But you're trying. (laughs) And and you're trying with the absolute cutting edge latest technology, which itself, as you know, I am assuming you're at the point where whatever version of AI you're speaking to. GPT or Llama or Falcon or something that you've grown on your own is capable now of recursively helping you to do this. If you give it the value set, it can help to do this. And that's beyond exciting. So so can you tell us, first of all, can you explain for people of small intellectual capacity, which starts with me, what a DAO is and how it works? And then let's explore how this is happening in real time in the world. Absolutely. So yeah, we've explored the refi side a little bit of refi DAO. Um, so maybe it makes sense to, to to explore the DAO side a little bit. So wow, yeah, DAO's DAO stands for decentralized autonomous organization. Um, it was an uh, innovation that was brought about with um, the development of these cryptocurrencies. You know, you've heard of Bitcoin. Uh, next came Ethereum, which allowed you to actually create not just money on top of these blockchain networks, uh, but actual new types of organizational structures. And so it, it might make sense to, to, to explain blockchain and, and Web3 a little bit. Uh, if you can explain blockchain in a way people will understand, I will be in your debt forever, Monty. Okay, let me give you a go. So imagine we can uh, take the example almost of creating a, 
a network of, of value. And, and so imagine like if you're trying to maintain um, a database of transactions that have gone on and, and you had an Excel spreadsheet and you were recording, I sent you $5 uh, in my Excel spreadsheet, right? If I own the Excel spreadsheet on my computer, how are you going to know if I just tweak the numbers a little bit and go on, no, actually, I owe $10. You owe me $10. Or a thousand. And you've got your own version of the spreadsheet that your owns on your computer. And you can suddenly tweak the numbers and change the data. And, uh, and, and then how are those two spreadsheets talking to each other in a way that's trustful? Because they both could have completely different versions of the reality of how value has been exchanged uh, or what transactions have gone on or what data has been put on there. Uh, has the data been changed? So that's a, a, a centralized database, right? It has one version of the truth that exists uh, locally. And so a blockchain is really a way to say, okay, how can we create a database where everyone maintains their Excel spreadsheet, right? Uh, if you think about it in that way, but they, they're all talking to each other. They're interconnected. In order to update the Excel spreadsheet to say this thing has happened, everyone needs to agree in this peer-to-peer -peer network. And then the entire global state goes, okay, this transaction has happened. We all recognize it. We've reached consensus as to what's happened. Um, so if we're trying to keep track of whether it's a financial network, but also um, the state of our ecosystems, you know, if we're saying, okay, this tree has been chopped down, um, you know, we need to reach a consensus that that tree has actually been chopped down. And so we need to collect multiple sources of, of data that verify that that tree has been chopped down. And then we can update this global database, uh, this blockchain of, of parties that goes, okay, we all agree that that tree is no longer there. And, and, and then that is in the global ledger, the blockchain, right? Um, so really, you can just think about blockchain as a technology infrastructure similar to the internet that is more peer-to-peer -peer, um, that actually allows you to reach consensus on the truth within that network, i.e. the state of transactions, the state of um, the data, the state of the participants within that network. So I hope that wasn't, does that? And, and you can't go back and change it because you would have to change it simultaneously on an in almost infinite number of separate machines. Right. And, and that's a logistical impossibility until we come up with quantum computers. Right. So those are the, the kind of classical properties that, that um, people mention blockchain has. It's immutable, i.e. exactly what you mentioned. You can't um, change the state of it just because uh, of your whims. It, there's a high level of transparency because anyone can see and look in the global state of what's happened within that network. Um, and it's peer-to-peer -peer and has a few other interesting properties as a technology. So at the base layer, that's blockchain. And then on top of that, becomes more and more layers of things that you can start to build on this new global substrate of a technology infrastructure, similar to the internet. You can imagine internet as a protocol, and then we build all of the things that we do on the internet today is built on top of that base layer protocol. Um, so this new blockchain protocol just has some new, new primitives of being more transparent, immutable, that allows us to build new forms of applications, of value, of networks, of organizations um, on top of these new infrastructures. I, I want to let you go deeper into that, but I have some real baseline questions first. Yes. Is everything based on Ethereum now or is there a new set of blocks? And if so, without losing people, Bitcoin was proof of work. Ethereum is not proof of work. Mm -hmm. If we are heading into a world, so this is a big if, I am quite powerfully influenced by Simon Michaud, who reckons that we are using 19 terawatts rolling at any given point. There is not the material flow available to create 19 rolling terawatts globally in a way that is renewable. There, there isn't, for instance, enough copper in the world, mineable in the time frame. If we're going to have to shrink our power use quite significantly, does the entirety of the blockchain require 
extraordinary amounts of power. It's not going to require Bitcoin amounts of power, but does it still require very large quantities of power to keep it shifting? And is that a potential rate limiting step? The simple answer is no. Okay. We've actually solved that problem in the blockchain space. Um, there, there's still obviously some um, public perception, I guess, that's come from the legacy of blockchains. Of, of you're right, the first version of this infrastructure um, came from Bitcoin. That was the inception of blockchain technology, and it leveraged this proof-of-work algorithm that required a very um, computationally resource-intensive network of miners that you might have heard of that, that consume vast amounts of power um, and hardware, the, the actual physical hardware, uh, to maintain that network. Um, Ethereum was the next iteration or next major iteration of blockchain. Um, that then recently has upgraded to this new mechanism that all of the other major blockchains are now using called proof of stake, which is, is, is just so minimally electricity um, consuming that it's not worth talking about because we, can, we, we operate on the internet that consumes just as right. much electricity as blockchain networks will do. Um, and so the technology has moved on to the point where it's actually very very efficient um, in, in terms of energy use. And part of the whole refi space that I'm a part of is, is making sure that we are directly measuring the, the uh, carbon and uh, electricity impact of these networks and of other internet protocols and trying to obviously minimize that as a base layer, but also creating regenerative uh, blockchains. So one of the interesting blockchains that I'm a huge fan of is called Celo. And Celo is, the, is a carbon negative um, blockchain, C-E-L-O, um, Celo blockchain. Um, and it's a carbon negative Ethereum compatible blockchain. Um, so with every transaction that is submitted on the network, the carbon impact is actually negative. So you're actually removing carbon from the wow. atmosphere just from you. So imagine every time you're browsing the web, uh, carbon is being absorbed into the earth. Right. <laughs> Instead of being the equivalent of driving from here to Glasgow and back, which pretty much every every yes. search on, on Google's enormous services. Right. Every email you send, for example, imagine every email you send is actually reducing carbon in the, in the world. How does Celo do this? Um, so so they, they were the, one of the pioneers of proof of stake, um, this incredibly uh, energy efficient blockchain architecture. But they also have always embraced refi protocols, projects, initiatives. Uh, and so the majority of, of projects building on their chain um, are refi um, regenerative aligned. And essentially, uh, how blockchains work is in order to maintain the validity of the network and verify all of the different things going on. Um, there's a very small transaction fee that is charged on each um, kind of transaction on the network, fractions of a penny. Mm. Uh, but the sum of that over the entire network creates a form of economic machine um, that then um, that can then be utilized to then build more public goods for the network. So in this sense, there we reinvest that money into building right. more tech infrastructure that benefits the entire network of projects that are building on that. Right. Um, and so a portion of that um, recurring kind of stuff is going towards the regenerative initiatives um, that are utilizing Celo's technology. So oh. um, carbon credits, ecological credits, um, these kind of things, so that actually just by operating within that chain, um, you are um, having a positive impact. Right. Um, uh, and so that's a pretty foundational uh, innovation uh, in my view. Yeah, totally. And I've just found Celo blockchain and I will put it in the show notes for people. So this is fascinating. I would really like to go further down the rabbit hole of of how proof of stake works, but I'm also aware that that's probably not interesting to the majority of listeners. So let's take ourselves back up a level. Assume that this does work, that some very bright people, including you, have really thought about this and it's going somewhere. So you have ReFiDAO. 
what does it do? How does it do it? And how is it working? And where are the edge points where it contacts the real world? Answer any of those in any order you like. Yeah, absolutely. So I think maybe it, it makes sense to just um, go back to the beginning of ReFiDAO a little bit. And so um, I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that um, there was this moment when the kind of ReFi space was born. And it really happened, I think, at this point where there was an, some initial ReFi protocols called Toucan Protocol and KlimaDAO, um, which essentially um, created this way for onboarding carbon credits, um, which are, there's, there's a, today an existing market for carbon where you can um, buy and uh, retire carbon credits to offset your um, impact or, um, or basically provide funding for uh, projects that are sequestering carbon across the globe. Um, and so this exists in a legacy uh, and we can talk about that because it's a very interesting uh, market uh, of which uh, you know there's a, there's a lot of nuance there. But but essentially what happened is there was this moment when they created the infrastructure to bring this legacy carbon market that existed on chain. And the mechanisms that they created, they thought would, okay, maybe a couple thousand credits will be bridged. Uh, what ended up happening is in the tens of millions of credits were bridged in the first few months, billions of dollars worth of volume of these traditional carbon credits came on chain. And suddenly these legacy institutions, Vera, Gold Standard, um, who were operating these carbon markets were like, holy crap. <laughs> like they, they, they've suddenly created this mechanism and they're sweeping all of these carbon credits and bringing them on chain. And, uh, and there was this mass of interest from uh, people all over the globe who were like, wow, suddenly um, this, this protocol has um, created this global disruption to this legacy market that was frankly failing um, uh, to deliver the impact that, that is uh, promised. Um, and, you know, it's not to say that actually the, the new system that, that was instantly created by Toucan and Klima solved the problems. But what it did do is, is definitely go uh, a lot of, caught a lot of people's attention to, to, and highlighted, shone a torch on some of the problems of these legacy right. uh, markets um, and began the conversation and the emergence of this refi ecosystem of uh, and a whole array of different people, projects, founders, investors, builders who were starting to coming towards this and go, OK, what does it mean to build um, regenerative systems, to redesign these systems in a way that's actually going to create positive impact, that's going to have greater transparency, accountability um, right. within these systems um, and try and reorientate them uh, in that direction. So that's, that's, that was the start of this refi uh, journey. Okay, and this feels like we might be about to create a whole new podcast and that we could go now on for many more hours than I thought. But as briefly as you can, can we unpick a little bit about the carbon credits? Because carbon credits in my world are are evidence of greenwash. They're, they're big companies going, it's okay, we can continue to sell you the plastic tap that you don't really need. Because, hey, we plowed up some prime farmland in North Shropshire and planted you know, rows of Sitka spruce. And the, the plowing alone released more CO2 than the trees will ever actually sequester, but it's okay because somebody somewhere gave us a tick in a box and so now we can say that we're all green. Yes. I am guessing that you guys are way beyond that. So first of all, I would like to unpick a little bit about carbon credits as a concept, but also how does shifting them from the world of legacy finance, where basically people are just pouring billions into polishing up their halos, how does shifting that onto the blockchain help it to become regenerative? Yes. Okay. There's a there's a definitely a lot to unpack here, but I can give my best high level summation of my thoughts around this uh, this concept. So I think one one of the interesting ways of looking at it is is imagine I own 
a plot of land. Uh, say it's a, a forest plot of land, right? My my choices are currently economically, you, you, we need to survive. You know, we need to, to have our needs met, and and there is a kind of economic incentive. Is okay. I can. I, I need. To, how can I make this land productive? I'm going to chop down the trees, sell the lumber, extract from it. I'm going to maybe do some intensive agriculture on there. Uh, I'm going to do any way I can to extract value from this piece of land. And so our current economic systems are completely geared towards the extractive uh, capabilities we can uh, gather from the land. Um, and unless, in my view, unless we flip those incentives um, so that the actual natural capital, the trees, the biodiversity, the soil health, the air quality, actually has value, not just uh, intersubjective value, but actually our economic systems are starting to recognize that value right. and reward the local land stewards who are looking after that land and things like that, then, then that's where we can really scale this regenerative um, paradigm to a network of, of people all over the globe who are, who are actually doing the work of regeneration on the ground, stewarding the land, protecting it, um, regenerating it. Um, they need to be compensated, frankly. Okay. Um, and, and for me, um, if designed in the right ways, Carbon credits and other forms of ecological assets going beyond just carbon, but looking at air, soil, water, um, biodiversity, uh, even equity and social considerations. All of that can be considered in the creation of new financial assets that are actually getting more financial value to people on the ground who are stewarding and regenerating. Um, but the current legacy of those markets are extremely broken. Um, the um, authenticity, uh, i.e. how can you actually verify the impact that's happening, um, is uh, the transparency uh, it has been terrible and there's been lots of fraud and scams um, and the impact just actually isn't happening on the ground in a lot of cases uh, and is questionable methodologies. So that side, there's a whole lot of innovation going on within this refi space about how do we actually accurately measure, report and verify um, the impact that's happening. And then on the market side, it's like, okay, well, if we actually, um, the, the, the legacy problem has been these credits are too cheap and, and you, you have these uh, abundance of poor quality credits for super cheap. And then big corporates are just scooping up large amounts of cheap credits and then claiming to be carbon neutral. Of course, that's totally broken and backward um, and that needs to be fixed. And so ReFi's exploration is, okay, how can we redesign these markets in a way that they are actually a positive force on the environment? They are creating economic incentives for companies to actually change um, rather than just greenwash. Um, and at the same time, they're providing um, financial support for land stewards and people on the ground and communities um, that are that are actually um, doing the work of regeneration. I, I'm saying this repeatedly, I'm beginning to sound like a parrot, but this is genuinely really exciting. And the fact that this is presumably happening at scale with super bright people is is fascinating. How do you get to the edge point where, let's assume that we're talking to a global, I'm trying to be careful and not get us shut down, a global purveyor of carbonated sugar water that happens to be dark brown, and there are several, two of those at least, which are identical. And <laughs> in the conversation with them, in my world, the conversation goes, guys, you need not to be selling carbonated sugar water. It's not good for anybody. And there is not a single way that you could ever make this actually a regenerative product. It is, by its nature, destroying people's health, in, in their consumption of it and destroying the planet in your production of it. Or we could talk to a, a giant multinational that is, is buying up huge carbon credits around here in order to grow chickens in the chicken equivalent of Auschwitz, where life is hell from the moment they hatch out of the egg to the moment when they're slaughtered. But 
and and produces huge amounts of of effluent that is destroying the rivers. There is no model in which this company, any of these companies, their end product needs to be in the world. They need to cease to exist, or they need to be producing something very different. Mm. How do we how do we bridge that gap? Uh, maybe it's a gap too far. Yeah. So so for me, I think they're they're separate issues. Okay. Um, I think one is an issue, of, like you say, of, of should these companies be operating? They're not having a positive impact on society, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the other one is saying, okay, well, well can we create a um, financial um, system that is creating the incentives that they um, are forced to to change right. and and do better, right. um, and and that it's redirecting some of their um, you know and yeah rechanneling resources and wealth into regenerative systems. Okay. Um, and so, for an example, if carbon credits didn't cost two dollars a ton but cost two hundred dollars a ton, uh, and companies had to re- accurately report and verify on their carbon emissions and pay for the negative impact that those carbon emissions are having, you can bet your bottom dollar that they're going to think, oh, damn, now we actually need to innovate and, and move away from the, the current systems that we're operating because we're not going uh, to be able to survive if not. Right. Um, and, and so suddenly you've created this giant global uh, incentive for companies all over the globe to shift how they're operating. Um, and 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 then all of the money that that also generates can be then channeled into regenerative projects, uh, and you you again you have this chance to try and shift the paradigm uh, without doing it in the way of saying, you know, I'm not going to nip. Okay, yeah, giant carbonated sugar water. You suck. Uh, you know, everything you do is bad, and we need to, we need to destroy you. Right. And they're just going to go, cool. We're willing to ignore yes, you. Exactly. No, <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. Yes. You don't you don't change by assaulting the existing system. You change by creating the new one that makes it obsolete. So. This is in the realm of carbon credits, and yet we know we're in the middle of a meta-crisis and it's not all just about the carbon. There are a whole other bunch of things, social and web of life related, that we need to measure. Are those gaining a similar level of global impact? And, And are there people looking at how do we measure the complexity of things, because it seems if we're not careful, carbon yes. becomes a linear lever in in a hyper complex system, and and that's never worked well, and it isn't going to work well now. Are there ways of addressing this at a systemic level so that we're looking at complex feedback loops? Absolutely, yeah. So this is a topic of of great interest to me. Um, we have this model called the carbon tunnel vision, right. uh, which is exactly as described. Everyone's laser focused on carbon and ignoring the interconnected web of challenges that it's related to and is e- deeply connected to. Um, and we can't just focus on carbon. We need to f- have this more holistic picture. Um, and so one of the really promising initiatives that I'm a part of, um, that that actually is just emerging publicly now, um, is called the ecological benefits framework. So I've been part of an activator. It's, it's run by a nonprofit called The Lexicon. Um, the activator itself has, um, has been funded by Google and the World Health Organization and has serious high-level alignment. Um, and basically, the activator's process was to bring together people in diverse sectors and disciplines from um, carbon markets, from ESG, from refi, from payment for ecosystem services, from all of these different sectors, um, and, and actually try and realign this framework towards an ecological benefits framework that isn't just carbon, but it's actually looking at biodiversity, air quality, water quality, soil, equity, and carbon. Right. And those six kind of 
ecological benefits are really at the root of any environmental project or impact initiative that you can really think of. And I, I will challenge anyone to think of a, a, of a positive impact initiative or project that you couldn't express its impact in those six factors. Um, because they, there's what you get when you get to the core. The real core of everything is those six ecological benefits um, of, of impact on the planet. Um, uh, and so if we can realign and create frameworks that actually account for that, um, measure that and create interoperability between those, that really allows us to yeah, reorientate these markets, these systems, positive impact, ESG, towards this next level kind of understanding. And, and for me, the way, I'm, the way I'm sitting and the way I'm looking at it, I really think that this is going to be the lexicon and the methodologies that replace the current dominant paradigms around ESG, right. which are deeply flawed, um, and carbon markets, again, deeply flawed. Um, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about uh, the EBF, or Ecological Benefits Framework, uh, in the coming right. years. Um, and, and the carbon markets are very primed for this to happen because they've collapsed since um, the Guardian article and other kind of um, discrediting um, their validity, like rightly so, they were broken. Uh, and that's been very much aired now. Uh, and so the, the markets are, are very much in search of what is um, going to be next. And there's a lot of energy around biodiversity credits now. But actually, I think the next step is, is this holistic look of ecological benefits as a whole um, and redesigning and reorientating around that. Right. On the assumption that the equity part is equity for the human and more than human world and the generations exactly. yet unborn, I am assuming. Yes. Wow. Yes. So much I want to cover, Monty, and I'm aware <laughs> of the time. We might need to get to refi uh because we've... <laughs> we, yeah, okay. We've but done. I have one question before we do, which is it, hidden in amongst there was companies will be required, legally required to report on, on whatever it is that we're measuring. That requires a legislative framework and that requires political change. And at the moment, we now exist in the best democracy money can buy, which is a kleptocracy, which is run by people who definitely don't want legislation of this sort coming forward. Is that an edge at which you guys are also, you seem to be working at every other edge. Are you working at this edge too? <laughs> yes, I, th I mean, I, I totally agree with you. It's a very difficult challenge um, to make that leap from, okay, we've developed these really interesting ideas and are starting to operate them to, okay, we can actually flip the dominant paradigm and, um, and you know, cha change things in that way. Um, so, I, I, you know, the way we're looking at it and approaching it is is trying to form bridges with that with that conventional world, uh, and so having the conversation with uh, municipalities, with lawmakers, with um, you know founders, CEOs, you know high high impact people, and 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 starting to um, have these conversations and and bring them towards this new paradigm because. Uh, for me, that feels like the only way we can start to actually get them on side, so that we actually have a, a force of people who are who, who have a connection to that conventional world, but are actually also change agents. Right. Um, and so that's why we're, we're talking about doing events where we bring different people together and explore um, these concepts. And I think refi is quite an open term to explore that, where you can actually start to speak their language of finance um, and of these conventional systems, but just show them how the, the dominant models that are being operated are just not sustainable for anyone, uh, that they're going to destroy uh, a lot of things, even for, for that uh, group of people. So yeah. There is um, no profit to be made in the dead world. But well, exactly. There we go. That seems to be a, a step beyond their comprehension. Okay. So now we're getting to the question that I asked you nearly an hour ago, which is what is now <laughs> and how does it work? So. Tell us about what you're doing in the world, Monty, because this feels like the cutting edge. 
Yes. So, so Reefy DAO really, like I say, it emerged during this time when a whole bunch of interest, momentum, founders, investors, builders were coming into this space called Refi. Um, and we really needed, um, I think there was a real need for a, for a way of bringing that community together and fostering a sense of, of culture and community and, um, and support for that ecosystem. Um, and so one of the first things we did was, you know, founder circles and bringing groups of clusters together that maybe there was a circular economy circle and a renewable energy circle, a carbon market circle, um, who are experimenting and thinking about these new tools and how to create new systems um, that, that reorientated towards this regenerative system. And so that emerged with then a, a podcast and a blog and an um, online community of people connecting, uh, a network of events across the globe uh, with our Refi Spring did 70 events across the globe um, in, in these communities all over the place to start to have the, the Refi conversation and, and speak to people on the ground who are ultimately going to be using and interacting with these protocols. If you're a, um, a farmer in Kenya, you need to understand how you can use Refi to make a living regenerating the soil or, or doing regenerative agriculture or wh whatever activity you're doing. And so we actually need communities of support within local places all over the globe. And so with this realization, um, ReFiDAO evolved into becoming this kind of network society, a, a society of societies uh, in a way. So we have this global online community that is the ReFi ecosystem uh, made up of all of these different people, founders, builders who are experimenting with uh, and implementing these ReFi solutions. Uh, and then we have um, this network of local communities, we call them local nodes, who are operating all over the globe um, who are trying to implement these solutions on the ground um, and create communities of support to implement regenerative uh, and refi solutions. So, you know, we have refi Lisbon, uh, refi Berlin, refi New York, refi Bangalore, refi uh, nodes all over Africa, all over South America. Uh, we have about 30 to 40 of these nodes now. Um, uh, the boundary of them is, uh, is quite fluid, but yeah, about 30 or 40 of these nodes uh, in communities all across the globe that are starting to, to gather um, regularly, have meetups, events, and form a community of people who are interested and, and building towards this regenerative future. And yeah, we're the real thesis of bringing together a diverse group of people on the ground in that locality that can start to implement these solutions on the ground. And then at the same time, having this global coordination layer that is the Refi DAO that is able to share resources among that network to support in various ways, produce educational resources, source funding for various parts of the network, and produce tools and services that are going to help the network thrive. And so, yeah, that, that, that's a bit of an overview of, of where we're currently at uh, and how we're operating. But uh, and, and people can join this? Yeah, absolutely. Do you have to be blockchain literate to join this? So our current community is quite focused on how we're using these advanced technologies and tools to, you know, create the change, right? Um, but you don't need to be necessarily in that realm because one of our explicit things we're trying to do is, is bring those kind of slightly more techie orientated people in partnership with the people on the ground, with people from other disciplines and diverse kind of thoughts and, and bring those together so that actually you can co-create the systems uh, with this diversity of perspectives, of skills, of knowledge, of resources. So the person who's doing regenerative agriculture, the person who's a sustainability professional, who's uh, XYZ, 
if you bring all those groups together and have yeah. these facilitated, structured communities that can actually start to leverage these advanced technologies, but do it in a way that is actually with the people and with a diversity of viewpoints for how best to, to utilize and implement that, then that, I think, is where the real value lies, is breaking out of this techie, crypto, refi, Web3 bubble uh, and and doing it, you know, having conversations with with real people, I guess. <laughs> different, different people. <laughs> different and, people. And bringing them on board so that the Web3 yes. refi bubble doesn't seem as alien, I guess. Yes. These seem at the moment quite geographically labelled. You, you, you gave us geographical locations. One of the things that I've begun to understand, and perhaps wrong, about DAOs is that they're not specifically oriented towards physical nation-state boundaries, that there is a sense of creating communities that are of purpose and passion rather than necessarily just of place. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's it's all bound into creating global networks of communities of people who identify and gather around a concept and a vision and a value set. Um, in, in our sense, it's the diverse, holistic value set of regeneration in all of its forms that people are resonating with, uh, maybe have a have a deep sense of identity with that that goes beyond their maybe individualistic national identities. And and I personally feel a deep sense of identity and and recognition of of this global community of people who are who are thinking in this way uh, and wanting to build solutions for a better future. And. I think that goes beyond the traditional boundaries of a state and a nation that we traditionally think of. Uh, And in a sense, it's almost like building a new nation of people all over the globe who share a sense of national identity, of culture, um, of mission, of purpose, uh, of vision, um, but then then are having unique localized expressions of that uh, in their locality. So um, a local founder in um, in, uh, Nairobi um, is building a community that's connected to these ideas of regeneration that are propagated at the global level, but implementing that locally on the ground in whatever way that looks like to to them and their context, whether it's uh, um, redesigning their local waste systems, uh, you know, acquiring land to regenerate the land and plant biodiverse forests and and at the same time be able to interact with refi protocols that allow him to create a living by doing that. And so, yeah, that's, I think, this this real sense that we're, we're creating a kind of network nation in some ways, a coordination is is emerging. So that's something of deep interest to me as well. And it's a regenerative network nation, because up until now, the sense I had of interconnected web-based globalization, if you like, was that it had a very libertarian, not terribly regenerative focus. And yet, it feels to me, if we go back in human history, 300,000 years of human evolution was not based on linear boundaries that you drew on a map and different patriarchal forces choosing to line their tanks up on either side of those boundaries and and defend them to the death of lots of people who generally weren't the people making the decision. That's a very new way of humanity organising what is us and what is them. And what I'm hearing from you is that there's a regenerative way of breaking the traditional Hobbesian nation-state boundaries such that they really don't matter anymore. And instead, we can have localized units of regeneration with our perhaps Dunbar number of people, which is 150 for those listening, ish, thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Um, the number yeah. of people with whom you can create personal, local, within walking distance connections, but that these 
Dunbar units are then connected on a global scale, which feels much more what our what we evolved to connect with a global world where where we can connect with the web of life in a way that feels like we're part of a much larger whole. And what you're creating, it seems to me, is an electronic web that potentially could mirror or perhaps mimic, or it won't ever be as hyper-complex as the actual web of life, but it's going to be incredibly complex. Is, is that a vision that you hold, or am I just projecting my own ideas onto it? No, that, that, that's absolutely it. It's this uh, cosmo-local um, network of, of people that are, um, yeah, like you say, operating locally, but part of this global community. And yeah, I think we could, we could very briefly, I know we're running up at the end, um, touch on, on, um, on, on this big topic of, of um, nation states and network states and, and just, just a very high-level overview of, of the kind of dominant paradigm of this Westphalian nation state that we know of, uh, backed up by the monopoly of violence, the sovereignty of nation states, the kind of structures that we operate in uh, on, on that level that have been built up over many years and become this dominant paradigm. And recently there's, there's been this kind of book called The Network State by uh, Bology um, uh, Saravansin. I can't remember his surname. I uh, can't pronounce it even. Uh, but this idea of a network state that was um, beyond physical boundaries. And it was actually this highly aligned online community that has a capacity for collective action that crowdfunds territory around the world and eventually gains diplomatic recognition from pre-existing states as a state operating um, alongside these Westphalian nation states, but in a new form. But his conception of network states is deeply problematic in many ways. Uh, it is rooted in libertarian, techno-dystopian kind of ideology um, and is, um, yeah, is really a replication of many of the problems that we already have uh, on steroids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so is actually quite scary in a lot of ways. Um, but the model that we're exploring, uh, and there is an emerging kind of body of work around, uh, is this creation of new network sovereignties or these coordination-like structures um, that are exactly, as you mentioned, they're uh, a network of people who are meeting in their local communities but actually feel part of this global network uh, and are starting to create institutional and executional structures um, that are interweaving and interlapping with other networks, communities, organisations, um, and implementing these, um, you know, doing collective action um, on the ground. So a kind of quick definition of, of this term that's being introduced by Primavera and, um, and others from BlockchainGov, uh, which is a, a research organization uh, in, in this space. Uh, and they, they have defined this term of a coordination um, as, a, as an alternative to Bology's network state and to uh, the Westphalian uh, nation states that we're used to. Um, so they define coordinations as voluntary interwoven networks of communities with aligned values and a shared identity. So we have maybe a community here in France and a community here in Africa that actually are very aligned in their maybe in their values and their identity and their culture and uh, in some ways and they choose to voluntarily inter interwove and interconnect their networks and share mutualized resources support one another um, and engage in collective action together and so. Yeah, and then you imagine what we're building, this network of these communities all over the globe uh, in, in countries, uh, in every continent and in countries uh, um, in every continent. And, and these uh, are communicating and have a shared culture and alignment and they're then 
uh, ultimately mutualizing resources to redistribute them within the network to engage in collective action through participatory governance um, and have a form of interdependency between all of these um, global communities uh, in a way that allows them to coordinate uh, that actually hopefully creates a huge positive impact. So yeah, that that that's our that's our vision. Wow. Um, and yeah, gosh. There are so many doors opening. I think we do have to stop. I have I have one last yeah. question. Well, I have several, but on particularly, I love the idea of coordination. But we discussed this with Grace Rachmani on the podcast last spring in a little detail, and I've thought about it since. The nature of this is that if there are hugely alt-right racist neo-fascist communities, they too can form their little networks, I guess. It feels a little bit like mm -hmm. being on Mastodon, which I guess in your world is probably ancient technology, but it feels quite new to me, where <laughs> I'm on a server that is linked to lots of other servers with similar values, and they just block the alt-right servers. We never get to hear them. There is no sense of being trolled like there is on Twitter, because we just don't talk to them. And we don't know they exist, which is nice and makes my ecosystem, as in echo chamber and ecosystem, feel good. But I have no idea what they're talking about, and it might be really difficult, mm. and it might be. It seems to me that in your world, you're making real efforts to bridge across communities. Mm -hmm. In the coordination space, how does that work? Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. And I think that's very much the difference as well between network states and, and this concept of coordinations that is being proposed. Network states are very much like, claim our territory, I only want to not only just communicate, but actually live and work with only people who think similarly to me and will actually just yeah, acquire land and live in our isolated echo chamber. So it's bringing yeah. that echo and, chamber. And put machine gun towers at all the corners and drones around the outside. Right, exactly. So it, it, it's, it's that kind of vibe. Whereas these uh, coordinations are going, okay, how can we create overlapping sovereignties? Um, can we create, how do we, how do we fit within the prevailing institutions? Um, and how can we use our coordination capacity to, uh, to exercise voice as opposed to exit? So instead of trying to just exit from all of the nation-based structures that we currently have and say, I'm going to form my own one, it's, um, okay, how can we actually coordinate in a way that allows us to use our voice effectively to create the change within these systems? Right. And so for me, that's really exciting because if you think about, if you're looking back at the kind of history of of these alternative uh, hippie, alternative economics, um, sustainability movements. You kind of have these almost quite isolated pockets of people who have really radical, interesting ideas about how they're going to change the world and implement these new things. But they're, they're, they're too isolated and fragmented and, and to the point where they don't actually have the impact that they want because they aren't connected in a way that allows them to exert enough political, economic, social pressure in a way or, or influence that allows them to enact that change. Uh, whereas now with the technologies that we have uh, and the tools that we have and with these new organizational structures of a coordination, we can hopefully align all of these people all around the world and coordinate in a way that allows us to interconnect and, and yeah, actually exert the power and the influence and the change in this direction that we want to see. And of course, that is a double-edged sword because you're right, people can use that same model and start to exert that power and influence in a negative direction. But of course, that's not what we're trying to do. We're here to build the regenerative paradigm. No, but that's the nature of allowing people to be people. You can't tell them they can't or we just turn into another iteration of the old paradigm that, that tries to nail people to the ground. Okay, a final, final question. Really is the final one. <laughs> it, seems, it feels to me that at the edges of this, and let me take a step back. It feels to me that one of the reasons why denial and despair are people's default modes is because, you know, we either pretend 
nothing is changing or we say, well, it's way too late, we're all going to die anyway, is because they're not being offered routes to a regenerative future. And that this does offer a route through that is plausible. It doesn't say we're going to switch off the death cult and we're going to grow something new the next microsecond. So don't worry, guys, you're not going to fall off the cliff. It says you who have the billions sitting around that you want to do stuff, here is something that you too could get on board with and it would be okay. Which which is exactly what we need. Are you seeing, perhaps not the household names yet, but the, the one step back from the household names of people who are sitting on their dragon's hordes, beginning to look at this and go, yeah, my kids would actually like me if I was involved in what you're doing? Is Is that a thing? Yes, well, we're we're potentially opening a whole big can of worms here uh, because there's been a huge debate recently because institutional corporations um, have started to engage with the refi space. Um, and there's been this very controversial move that happened, which is Shell uh, have been investing heavily in Web3 and refi um, and starting to, to put money towards it. And yeah, it's been a hugely controversial debate as to like, how we engage with these kind of actors, uh, what happens, you know, should we accept the money, what in what terms and what ways. And and so, yeah, Shell provided a, a match funding sponsorship to this protocol called Gitcoin, which is like a crowdfunding platform for many different Web3 re- refi protocols. And so it's a very difficult question uh, right. and everyone has a different take on the boundaries and the kind of um, ways of, of doing that. But yeah, I, I don't think we can okay. get too deep into no, the weeds no. there, but basically uh, that's like at the very controversial end. But then it, there's obviously this much more middle ground where we're, okay, engaging with um, political actors and, and stuff in a way that is aligned, that is bringing them with us, that is kind of trying to reorientate some of that capital, some of that power, some of that intellectual capacity towards this regenerative paradigm. But it, it, it's a very contextual kind of thing that looks different um, and everyone has their own lines as to what that should look like and how it is an But I think it is essential because the only way we can do this. Yeah, because if you don't get Shell and Exxon and Musk and the others on board, we are, this isn't just conceptual and philosophical. We're hitting hard geophysical boundaries. And if they can, if it were the case, and I'm guessing this was probably under Van Borden rather than the new CEO. But anyway, there was a point when the guy who headed Shell at least thought of himself as being part of the solution. Whether we agree with them or not is an entirely other question. And look, there are there are great people within these um, corporations and yeah. these organizations. It, it's easy to think of them as one giant homogenous entity that is totally evil. No, no, I, absolutely. And that's very, very understandable view. Yeah. Uh, but of course, there are there within those those organizations there are genuine people who want to enact change and who who have uh, really good intentions. So yeah, um, and and if you could reorient. We're just picking Shell because it's there, but reorient the whole of something that is to the rest of us so obviously an integral part of the problem, that the theory of change which allows that to happen is is striking and astonishing and potentially might veer the bus away from the edge of the cliff in time. So I can see, but but the the other half of me is going, no, no, don't touch Shell's money. It's dirty. Just don't because they're going to try and take us over and destroy everything. So yeah. 
And also, as long as we're not being used as a vehicle to further enact their greenwashing yes. and they're throwing us some pennies to then say to their shareholders, look, we aren't having this negative impact. Look, our halo is sparkly. Yeah, it's right. Exactly. And very likely both are happening. Yes. I mean, that's the thing. There are good people in Shell and there are completely venal people in Shell. Both are true. And, and it's possible that the same event is polished in two different ways by them. So... Exactly. Wow. Okay, let's not go too deep into the weeds. Monty, this has been <laughs> genuinely enormously inspiring and I want to stop everything else that I'm doing and immerse myself in this more. Is there anything else you would like to say to people for whom this is probably genuinely the first time they've heard any of this? Is there anything else you want in finishing? Yeah, I think I just invite um, anyone listening who found this conversation interesting to to check out some of the resources and and the stuff online that you can learn more if if, if that's what's interesting to you. So we have a podcast called the Refi Podcast where we bring on some of the leading thought leaders uh, and founders and and people within this space to discuss all of these concepts in much more uh, detail. Uh, we have a blog uh, blog.refidao.com. Uh, and we have a website that starts to map some of the, our network and our community and the organizations, the people, the events, the content uh, in this space. Um, and so, yeah, there's a bunch of resources online to help to, to go on this journey together. And, um, and yeah, we'd really love to see how we can make this a really diverse, inclusive uh, movement with people from all sectors, industries, disciplines, thinking uh, and about how they can bring their, their piece of the puzzle to this regenerative symphony um, that we're trying to, trying to create together. Brilliant. Monty, that has been genuinely very inspiring. I'm sorry I do sound like a broken record, but it's because it's true. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to come on. I will put all of your links to all of the resources into the show notes. And if we have time, we will have another conversation probably halfway through next year sometime and just see where it's getting to, because it seems to me that things are changing very, very fast in this space. And you have an almost unique capacity to take things that are enormously complex and render them comprehensible. So thank you for everything and for having the connectedness and the empathy and the hugeness of heart to make this happen. Oh, thank you, Amanda. It's been, a, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I love talking about this stuff, so I'm always, always happy to, uh, to come and jam with you. But uh, yeah, very, very much looking forward to staying connected with you um, and, and uh, your community of, of people as well. So Magic. Yeah, lots of love. Thank you. So there we go. That's it for another week. Wasn't that inspiring? That was really inspiring. Enormous thanks to Monty for being part of founding ReFiDAO, for being part of the conversations that really need to happen at the cutting edge of what is going to change our world. There is no stepping back from this edge and knowing that there are people with Monty's emotional and spiritual literacy and his capacity for intellectual engagement with this in the conversations that are happening initiating them, engaging with them, pushing them forward. This is what gives me hope that emergence into a regenerative system might yet happen. So I have put a load of links in the show notes to everything that Monty mentioned. Please do go and engage. Listen to the ReFi podcast. Go to the website. Find out how you can bring whatever it is that you are good at to this conversation, because each of us can do something really well and can do it in ways that only we can do it. And if we can create the web of connections that allows each of us to be what we can best be, what we can only be, 
in the way that we can be it best and bring that into connection with everybody else doing the same, then we have the possibility of real emergent change. So that's your homework for this week. Head off, find the links, engage with them. Be part of the solution. It's the best that we can do, and it is urgent now. Nothing else matters as much as this now. So, that is it for this week. We'll be back next week with another different conversation. In the meantime, enormous thanks to Caro C for the music at the head and foot, and to her and to Alan for producing the podcasts. Thanks to Anne Thomas for the transcripts, to Faith Tillery for the website, and the long, long conversations that help us shape how we can make accidental gods be part of the solution. And, as ever, an enormous thanks to you for being part of our community, for listening, for engaging, for shaping the world that we want to step into. If you know of anybody else who wants to be part of that world, who wants to understand how the web and our interaction with it can be part of a regenerative future, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.